0: All right, good morning everyone. So as David said, I'm Paul. Uh, I go to Canterbury Gants Community Church. So it's, um, it's a privilege to actually be here with you this morning just to share a little bit from the Gospel of Luke that I've been challenged with. and. Um, it's a privilege to be here on Emma's baptism as well. I mean, it's great to see, really great and I really enjoyed what you shared as well. Um, I think it's just fantastic and one thing I love about baptism is that you just get that little snapshot into what's been going on in people's lives you because know, we're all we're so busy, things are going on all the time and it's great to actually have a chance to actually understand and get a little bit of a shot behind the scenes of the things that God's been doing. And I love baptism, baptisms in particular because they bless us with a visual representation of what's going on inside. And they're, real, they're a great demonstration of what's been happening inside a person's heart whereby, as Brent was talking about, the old has gone and the new has come. And it's great to see that visual representation because we can't see a person's heart. You know, we, we can see the way people speak, we can see the things that they do, we can see the way they live, the things that might, they might wear and whether we would admit it or not, you might make certain judgments about that, whether that be right or wrong. Uh, but all those things will never really tell us what's going on inside and we know it's what's inside that matters to God. You know, the Bible says that we look on the outward appearances because that's all we've got to go on. But God actually looks at something much deeper than that. He looks at our heart. He looks at our spiritual walk to see where that's at. And that's why we're going to talk today about the heart of a true disciple. And we're going to look at when you look at a person's heart, when Jesus looks at a person's heart, what does Jesus see? And how does that remind us about baptism and what we see in that visual representation? And the passage we're going to be looking at in that is Luke 14. For in that passage Jesus finds himself amongst the most externally impressive people of the day. Okay, it's an A-list of people who are attending this banquet. They are the elite of society. Uh, But in the midst of that context, what Jesus does is he reminds us that it's not the externally impressive people that God's kingdom is all about. It's for the people whose heart has been changed and has been made new into something different. So why don't you flick to Luke 14. Now Luke 14 starts in verse 1 but then we're going to jump to uh, verse 7 because all verse 1 really tells us that it's the Sabbath and that Jesus has gone on to a dinner invitation that he's received. And it says he's received a dinner invitation from a prominent Pharisee. Now that is, if you like, the leader of leaders. Pharisees were the leaders of the day. They were the teachers of the law. They were the pinnacle of the religious hierarchy, the church of the day. And, and Jesus has been invited to dinner at the house of a prominent Pharisee. So this is a leader of leaders. And around this dinner table was society's elite. There was all the other Pharisees that were with him, all the other well-recognised people of the day, some rich and well-respected family members. They're all sitting around externally, a very impressive impressive guest list and Jesus has been part of it. And It says in verse 1 that he's been invited to this because he's being carefully watched. See, Jesus is building a following at this time and he's building a reputation and they're thinking by bringing him into the quarters, if you like, by bringing him inside the tent, they might observe something they could use against him later on. So in verse 7, I want to pick it up. I'm going to read verse 7 through to verse 11 to start with and then we'll sort of work our way through as we go from there. Okay? Because what Jesus does, when he walks in, he starts observing certain behaviour amongst the guests. Let's see what it says. Verse 7 it says, When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honour at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honour... For a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this man your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you're invited, take the lowest place that when your host comes along, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honoured in the presence of all your fellow guests. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So Jesus observes them all at this dinner table, all the guests now. They see themselves all amongst the elite people around them. It's all kind of, you know, everyone's being amazed by the rich and famous and they start posturing for the impressive places around the dinner table. See, in that day there was a very real pecking order as to how you sat. So the host would have obviously the, the most important seat as the host of the dinner party and then next to that person would be the person of most honour, the guest of honour, you've often, you've often heard that term. Then next to them would be the person of next honour and so and so down the line you would effectively get ranked. And so the guests in that day are all trying to rank themselves to make sure that they're seating in, seated in places which would have a higher honour attached to them. So Jesus tells them a parable to say, you know, it's actually, it would be quite humiliating if you, postured for an impressive seat and then were asked to move down it would be far better for you to take one of the low seats and be asked to move up now why does jesus make that point well there was an immediate application he was having a bit of a go at the guests who were around him saying that you're focused on the wrong things here you should really be taking the low seats and offering other people allowing them to be blessed by taking the higher seats that was the immediate application. But there's also a secondary application that flows right through Luke 14. And that is he was reminding them to have more of an eternal perspective. And Brent talked about that when he talked about baptism, to think more in terms of eternity rather than the here and the now. See, the Bible refers to a form, a great banquet, an eternal banquet. So in Revelation he heard it talked about a heavenly wedding feast and in verse 15 later on, There's a reference to how great it's going to be to eat at the banquet, at the dinner table in eternity when Jesus comes back and he takes all those who believe in him to be with him for eternity. And it's described as a banquet because that time is going to be a time of celebration. It's going to be a time of enjoyment. It's going to be a time of amazing um, communion with God. And Jesus points to that time and he says it's better to be exalted in that time than it is here and now because you want to have glory then, you don't care so much you shouldn't keep caring about glory here and now and it's the one who's humbled who will be exalted then and the people which seek glory now will be humbled it says that in verse 11 everyone who exalts himself now will be humbled and he who humbles himself now will be exalted that's future tense looking to look into a time in the future and Jesus is saying it's at that time that you want to be glorified, not here and now so don't worry about the place of honour around the table. In light of eternity, what does that really matter? Now then he's made that point to the guests and what's interesting then is he turns to the host which everyone is usually extremely polite to and makes sure the host is treated well and appropriately in these sorts of occasions and he actually makes the same point directly to the host. And he says this in verse 12 to 14. He says, when you give a luncheon, this is Jesus talking directly to the host now. When you give a luncheon or a dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers, or relatives, or your rich neighbours. Now, who did the host invite to this dinner? All of those people that Jesus is saying, you probably shouldn't really invite those people. He says, if you invite them, well, they're just going to invite you back, and so you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, you should invite the poor, the crippled, the lame and the blind. I want you to remember that category of people. Okay? comes up later on. The poor, the crippled, the lame and the blind. You should invite those people because they have no way of repaying you. But you will be repaid at the resurrection of the Righteous. See Jesus then says don't invite all the people you've effectively invited to this dinner. Don't invite all the elite or your your family members or your friends, all the people that you know will probably just invite you back next weekend. You should be inviting the poor, the crippled, the lame, blind, people who aren't going to be able to return the favour because then you'll be blessed at what's called the resurrection of the righteous which is referring again to a future point in time. It's referring to eternity. And he's saying that is the time you want to be repaid. That is the time that matters. So when we talk about the heart of the true disciple, Jesus straight away is looking straight past all the externally impressive things about these people. He's going straight to the heart and he's saying, do you care about the here and the now or do you care about what is to come? And it's exactly that point that then leads into a pretty well-known parable called the parable of the great banquet. It starts in verse 15 goes through to verse 24. And see a man around the table then makes this comment. It's in verse 15 he says, Blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. So this man, he looks forward, he's, looking at, he's talking now about this, this feast that is yet to come, the time in turn he's saying, how good is it going to be on that day when we eat at the kingdom of God? Now that's not really a genuine statement by this person. Alright? This is this was more him trying to demonstrate that he's on the same wavelength as Jesus. Now, all you other Pharisees are around, you need to get your head around where we're at, because me and Jesus, it's like he's saying we're on the same page. You know, when I was dating my wife, it was a little bit tense because I was Essendon and she was Collingwood, and her family was very strong, Collingwood, and my family was very strong. Um, Essendon. Anzac Day was always kind of, we never talked about it. It was a bit tense. But it's like, you know, I remember when I was first dating her, I was keen to impress the family. And so it's as if I'm sitting around that dinner table, you can just imagine me saying how great's it going to be when Collingwood next wins the premiership. (laughs) Now everything you kind of, you don't really believe that and it kind of pains me just to say it and I see a lot of a cringe factor in the congregation here as I just said that out loud and nods to the head. You don't really mean it but by saying it you think I'll fit in with these people, okay? They'll be impressed. They'll think I'm on the same wavelength as them. They'll think I'm one of them. That's this sort of statement. How greats it going to be to eat at that feast that you're talking about, Jesus. And that's the lead-in to this parable of the great banquet. It's said in direct reply to that comment and it's probably because of that, it's probably one of the most direct parables in all the Gospel of Luke. So Jesus says this. Actually, I won't, I won't read it word for word. I'll give, you, I'll give you the overview. See, there's an owner who has prepared a banquet. Okay? He keeps this idea of a banquet rolling. He's prepared this great banquet and he's sent out all these invitations. He's told people it's coming and then finally the banquet's ready. All right, he's prepared it's ready for people to come in and feast and so the owner sends out a servant and he sends out a servant to tell people that invitation i've sent now's the time okay it's saturday night six o'clock we're ready come on in okay servant goes out goes to all the people who had been invited and tells them the banquet's on time to come but one by one they make excuses so the first one says, well, thanks for the invitation, but I've just bought a field and I want to go check out the field. So you'll have to excuse me, I'm not going to be there. Next one says, well, I just bought all these oxen, which was a prize that seems strange in today's culture, but that was a prize possession of the day. So I want to go try out these oxen, so please excuse me, I'm not going to be at the banquet either. And another says, well, I've just got married, so I can't come. So the servant reports this back to the owner and then the owner gets kind of angry by this because he's prepared this amazing banquet but no one is accepting the invitations that he sent out. So he sends the servant out again and this time he goes to a category of people. You've probably guessed the category. Jesus says he sends the servant out to the blind, the crippled, the poor and the lame, same people referred to. And they all come. They all accept the invitation with open arms. And so the banquet gets filled with these people. And then the servants get sent out again and say, you know what, go to all the streets and the alleyways, tell everyone who is interested, come in and enjoy the banquet. It wasn't necessarily intended for them, but now it's open to them. So come on in. And it says the banquet is full. And then there's a very pointed verse in verse 24 where it says, the owner says, I tell you, not one of those men who were initially invited will ever get a taste of my banquet. Now it's one of the most direct parables because it's a direct parable It's almost given to that person who said, how great is it going to be at that day, this banquet? And then Jesus says, you're right, it is going to be great but you're not even going to get a taste of it. And he says not just to the person who made that comment, he said it to everyone around the table because everyone around the table represented the group of people who were invited. They had the initial invitations. They were the Jewish people and God always had a plan of salvation for the Jewish people. He had a plan of forgiveness for their sins, a plan whereby they would come into a full communion with God. That was always their plan. This was the banquet that had been prepared. And so Jesus was sent out as the servant. And when Jesus was born, he went out and he told people that the kingdom's coming, the banquet's ready, God's got a plan of salvation for you. But he wasn't embraced by the people to whom he was sent. Instead, they crucified him. So the parable flows on to say, well, then the invitation went out more broadly. It went out to all those people who the society of that day would have thought never would have been at that banquet the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. They represented the outcast, they represented the exiled, they represented the people no one wanted to be around. They represented in that day the people that had no hope. Because in that day, if you were blind, or you were crippled, or you were poor, you were lame, you had any sort of disability. There weren't the sort of medical facilities there were today. You were gone. You were just cast out by society as useless. And it was viewed as though you had God's judgment on you because you lived in that way, or that's the way you turned out. God must have had, that's because of sin that you did that. So the assumption is they're never going to be in the kingdom of God. They're not worthy. But through this parable, Jesus says, you know what? They're the ones who are going to fill this banquet. Now, why are they going to fill the banquet? Because I think when you know that you are alone and you are lost and when you know you're without any hope and when you know it's only by grace of God that you'll be saved, when you know that inside in your heart that there is nothing of value, then when the invitation comes to be made new, when the invitation comes to be changed and to be part of a, of a life with God that is completely different, you're going to accept that invitation with open arms, aren't you? Because you know it's your only hope. You know there's nothing in yourself which can bring about that salvation. And so you're going to embrace it with open arms. Church, that's the beginning of a heart of a true disciple because it's a heart that says, I don't deserve to be part of God's family. I don't deserve to be part of God's kingdom. And it's a heart that at its core knows that we are a lost and a sinful people who are in desperate need of God. And so when that invitation comes, you you embrace it with open arms because you know it's your only hope. You know it's your only hope. And so it's worth asking ourselves, what might have priority in our hearts over God? What things in our life might be causing us to remain fixed on the here and the now rather than what is to come? Because today's culture will tell you that you need to get your house in order first. You need to get your salary to a sufficient level. You need to get an impressive job description. You need to make sure your superannuation and investment portfolios are stable enough. Now, I'm all for being financially responsible but the danger is that those things consume our heart so that we start to say to God, please excuse me. I've got to check out my fields, I'll get to you later. You know, today's culture will tell you that you need to own the latest and the greatest things. We need to know the, own the latest technology, we need to wear the latest clothes, we need to be across the latest trends and those things aren't in themselves bad but the danger is they consume our hearts so that our response to God is, please excuse me, I'll, I'll get to you later. Today's culture will say you need to go out and you need to experience everything that the world has to offer. You need to travel, you need to expand your network, you need to build your profile, you need to get in a relationship. Now the danger is those things consume our hearts that we start to say, please excuse me God, I need to experience all these things first. I'll get to you later. But our God is not a God we can just put on hold while we pursue our own earthly things. Our God is a God who wants our heart to pursue him above everything else. Because if we spend our time pursuing all of our earthly stuff then we will never get a taste of the banquet. Not even a taste. Our God is a God who wants our heart to pursue him above everything else. And that's why baptism is beautiful with that because it's a chance for people to put their hand in the air and say, you know what, I'm going to pursue God above everything else. And it's an outward demonstration of that change which has gone on in here. It's a total switch in your heart which says, I'm not going to pursue me and earthly things anymore. I'm going to look at what is to come and I'm going to pursue that eternity First. But even more than that, in the next section of Luke, in the last section, it reminds us that a heart of a true disciple doesn't just pursue him above everything else, it makes him Lord. And I'll explain what that means a bit more in a second. See, in verse 25 and 27 of Luke 14, Jesus makes a pretty provocative statement. And the the scene switches, okay? So we've been at a dinner table. He's been talking to all the Pharisees around the dinner table and now he kind of moves on and he addresses a much larger crowd of people, okay? And he makes this statement to them. He says, If anyone comes to me and he does not hate his father, his mother, his wife, his children, his brothers and sisters, if he doesn't even hate his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now... What does Jesus mean by that statement? Well, he's not literally requiring us to hate our respective families in order to follow him properly, okay? And a lot of you are probably thinking rats like that. I was almost in obedience to that calling, I was doing one thing right. That's not the point, is that we hate ourselves and our family members, okay? It's deliberately an extreme statement to get our intention and to make a point. And he's going to the extreme to make the point that there should be absolutely nothing in our lives which we are not willing to leave behind as part of following Jesus at this point. There's absolutely nothing in our lives that we should not be willing to leave behind as part of following Jesus. And you can see this emphasised in what he says next because he wants to make us aware of the cost of following Jesus. And so he says in verse 28 to 33, he says, if a builder's going to build a tower, they're going to, do some work to try and figure out how much that tower is going to cost. And similarly, if a man, if a king is going to lead an army into battle, they're going to make assessment of what's involved in winning that battle. Okay? So the question that follows that statement is if I'm going to follow Jesus Christ, I'm going to be a follower of him, then what is the cost which is attached to that commitment? And the answer to that is given in verse 33. He says, In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. So what's the cost of following Jesus? It costs us everything. It costs us everything. Now, please don't read that as meaning if we're going to follow him, we literally need to sell up all of our possessions and go live on the side of the road somewhere. That's not the point. What he's talking about here is that we need to be willing to make him Lord over everything. Over all that we have, all of our assets, all of our finances, all of our careers, all of our families and over all that we are, all of our gifts and abilities, all of our talents, all of our heart's desires, all of our dreams. He needs to be Lord and have by that I mean have Complete control and authority over all of those things that 's what it means to make him Lord, so that in our hearts we can honestly say to him, Jesus, all that I am, and all that I have is yours, my Lord and my God. We can 't say that he's our Lord and yet hold back things that he we don 't want him to take control of. He is only Lord when he has control of everything see it's one thing to be willing to seek God's kingdom first it's another thing to be willing to let our kingdoms go they're two very different things but they're two equal components of what needs to go on inside our hearts one we need to seek his kingdom above everything else and secondly we need to let our kingdoms go and submit it all to his complete sovereign control as our Lord and as our God because if you're like me you're greater at trusting God up to a point you're greater trusting God up to a point where it's still comfortable. Or perhaps you're not at that point, perhaps you don't have any trust in him at all. Well, Jesus is pretty open about this. He says, if you come to me and you accept my invitation, there's a great banquet that awaits. There's life to the full. There's incredible blessings. There's a salvation that is yours for all eternity. But it costs you everything because I need to be in complete control over your heart. I want you to pursue me above everything else and I want to be in complete control. Because our call is ultimately to be willing to hand over everything. So where he says to go, we go. Where he says to say, we say. What he says to do, we do. The way he wants us to live, we live. And where he wants us to serve, we serve And you know what? The promises that flow from that are incredible. The promises that flow from that are a love that knows no else, a relationship with a creator, the one who formed us, an eternity that goes on for all time, a God that journeys with us no matter what the world will throw at us, a God who says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. But all those promises flow When we pursue Him above all else and we make Him Lord. And baptism symbolises that. Because, like Brent explained, when we go under the water, it's saying, I'm leaving the old behind. I am submitting everything under His authority. And then we come up something new. We're given new life, we're given a new start under God's sovereign control and we can experience the amazing banquet that awaits for all those who place their faith in him. But the truth of the matter is that you know, nothing in our hearts naturally want to do this. Because in our hearts we want to chase our own glory rather than eternity. We want to pursue the things of this world rather than eternity. We want to maintain control over our assets and everything that we have rather than submit that control to someone else. So what do we do? Well, we ask Jesus to change it through his Holy Spirit. We say, Jesus, you died on the cross for me. That's the whole reason he died. But so through his Holy Spirit, he could make the old new. He could change our hearts to something that's a little bit more like his. He could change our hearts into something that pursued him above everything else. He could change our hearts to one that makes him Lord. And he could change our hearts to one that when the invitation comes to be part of his kingdom and part of his banquet, we accept it with open arms rather than say, please excuse me. I'll get to you later. He died on the cross so that all those who had faith in him, their hearts could be made new. Now at the end of this section, at the end of Luke 14, it says, He who has ears, let him hear. Hands up if you've got ears. You know what that means? It means this message is for everyone. He who has ears, let him hear. Let him hear about the heart of the true disciple that says, I want to pursue you above everything else and I want to make you Lord. He who has ears, let him hear that that is the heart of a true disciple. And being baptised is declaring just that, that God has changed our heart into one that is all about God, that's all about his kingdom and a heart that makes him Lord. And may Jesus make that reality be the innermost desire of all of our hearts. He who has ears, let him hear. Let's just pray and then I'll I'll hand it back over to Dave and and close off. Dear Lord, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for um, the truth uh, that your son Jesus died for us. Lord, we thank you that we did not deserve an invitation to your banquet. We don't deserve an invitation to be part of your family. But Lord, you sent your servant Jesus Christ out to us to invite us in. And Lord, we thank you that each of us has a chance to accept that invitation with open arms by placing our faith and believing in you. And Lord, we thank you that when we do that, you take our hearts and you turn it into something new. Lord, may you shape our hearts into one that seeks you above everything else. May you shape our hearts into one that makes you Lord so that we can honestly say, Jesus Christ, you are my Lord. Am my god. We asked this and everyone said amen.